This week, we are taking a closer look at regenerative farming. We're digging deeper and chatting to two farmers about how they manage their farms in greater detail in a regen way, and how their farms have changed in the last few years. Remember, we bring you a new episode of the podcast every Friday, so make sure you're subscribed on your favourite platform. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to other episodes we've done previously about regenerative farming. Now, taking a regenerative approach can introduce more complexity into your farm business. Jez Fredenberg has been finding out more on how to navigate this. Hello, everyone. This week, we are talking to two more farmers about their regenerative journey. What started them on it, how their businesses have changed as a result and what they wish they'd known at the beginning. We will also be talking about what they make of the current political climate in Westminster and what they'd like to see if, and let's be honest, it's a very big if, Liz Truss was to have an epiphany about the importance of farming with nature. Our regen farmers this week are family farmer George Ford from North Somerset and Overbury Estates farm manager Jake Freestone from Gloucestershire. While George's farm was once reliant on an intensive pig enterprise and Overbury Estates was once a predominantly arable-only estate, both operate now as much more mixed systems based around natural processes. So let's hear from them. George and Jake, welcome to the Farmer's Garden Over the Farmgate podcast. Can you just start off by telling listeners a little bit about the farm, the farming system that you're running? George, can you kick us off, please? Hi, so yeah, um, we farm in North Somerset in a little hamlet called Nempnet Threadwell. Um, we've got a very small farm, really, 140 acres of all grassland, permanent pasture mainly. And we run a beef suckler herd of about 40 breeding cows, but we are trying to expand that gradually. Um, we also run a pastured chicken enterprise, um, meat, meat chickens, broilers, uh, seasonal through the summer. And then we do Christmas turkeys as well, which has been free range, but we're also transitioning that to a fully um, pasture raised system. Um, and then the aim is to retail all of the meat directly to the customer or restaurant. Um, we just started doing the beef this year, but the chicken and turkeys are all, they're all being sold direct. Nice, thank you. Quite a mix there. Jake, what about you? You've got quite a bit going on as well, haven't you? <laughs> yes, thanks, Jez. And thank you for inviting us onto the um, Over the Farmgate podcast. Uh, so, yes, I'm Jake. I manage Overbury Enterprises, which is on the Gloucestershire-Worcestershire border. Uh, the whole farm that we look after here is about 1,600 hectares. Um, about 900 of that is combinable crops. And then we've got 350 hectares of permanent grass and some grass lays, some herbal lays as part of stewardship. Um, and then the balance of the farm is sort of woodland, ponds um, and, uh, and other bits and pieces dotted around as well. We also have a, a contract farming arrangement with a neighbour um, on just over 200 hectares of combinable crops there as well. We uh, farm Cotswold Brash, a thousand foot above sea level, so very thin soil, um, quite high pHs, and then we sort of come down the slopes of Breeden Hill onto Sandover Gravel, um, and then we've got some Evesham series clay down to the A46. It's a really mixed farm. We've got a livestock enterprise of uh, about 900 ewes, outdoor lambing, combinable crops and we also let a little bit of land out for vegetables, um, some hand-picked peas, some tender stem broccoli next year, a um, bit of beetroot 
Um, so yes, lots going on and um, yeah, challenging, challenging farm. Yeah, I've, and I think people won't know from from listening to both of you there, but um, I think your enterprises have both they've both um, they've both changed quite a lot over the last few years, probably haven't they? Um, George, can you can you tell us a little bit? how things have changed for you because you're at the family farm aren't you so you've come back to the farm and it was quite an intensive system wasn't it can you tell us what it was like maybe when you first came back and um how you've been trying to change it to work in a more i guess in a more regenerative um nature-based kind of way yeah, sure. So I came, I went to Harper Adams um, and graduated in 2013. The, the main income from the farm was from an intensive pig unit, pig finishing unit. So we would finish about 4,000 pigs a year on a fully indoor, you know, slatted system. Um, very automated. The, uh, there was a lot of pig slurry, a lot of smell, a lot of lorries on the lanes. Um, but it generated a good income and that's what kept the farm afloat but I hated it. It went against kind of all of my beliefs and passions. Um, so it was really tough because it was the main, the main sort of um, income, but no one really enjoyed doing it. So, so I was just, I think almost having that system and just not having any pride in it um, is what maybe pushed me so far the opposite way, whereas the systems now are like, very high welfare outside and pasture raised and it's almost it almost needed that um that time with the intensive side to kind of push me the opposite way so yeah um so uh, in february this year we actually made the big leap and got out of pigs um partly because of where the price was you know if we'd have stayed in we would have just been losing money so it seemed a good time um and also the 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 direct selling part of the business is, is growing. It's only in its second year, but it is growing nicely. And we were in a bit of a better position to kind of take that leap. Um, and then with our with our suckler herd, so that's just kind of been conventionally run, I guess. It was grass in the, you know, pat, grazed in the summer and then we house them in the winter. We still do house, but for a less short period of time. Um, we were feeding concentrates to get them fat and create feeding the calves and we've just, started doing more holistically planned grazing and we've cut out all the fertilizer and all the concentrates but we're still getting the same sort of output so um yeah that's been really exciting over the last sort of three years seeing seeing the farm change from a i guess it, it would have been a neater farm now it looks a bit messier with a few more weeds about but the soils are should be in a, a healthier position um, and the stock look good too so there's it's a lot of big, big changes, isn't it? And it's it's yeah. not just, I guess, all the, the kind of practical side of it, but it's it's quite a it's a big leap mentally, isn't it, for yeah. you and your family? I guess like, how has that been? You know, and how were those conversations um, had? I guess uh, when you were trying to make those changes, was it something that everyone felt on board with like immediately, or is this something that took a bit of time? It's taken time. I mean. No one really enjoyed it. Um, and so if there was hope of a better way, then that was worth considering. So, um, it, I mean, the, the, the farming enterprises um, alone wouldn't make up for the loss of income from the pigs, but we have, it has then given us the opportunity to, um, we've actually got planning permission on that site to do some glamping pods so that 
but we're going to diversifying as well and hopefully that will top up the income but if it wasn't for that then it would have been a much harder decision although we didn't get a planning until the pigs had gone but we were pretty confident we'd get it so and, and do you do you feel all quite different now you know how do you feel and the rest of the family do you enjoy it much more you, you mentioned earlier you didn't have much pride yeah. in the farm but do you feel different now everyone seems like the weight off the shoulders it's quite strange i don't think my dad really appreciated how much strain and stress the enterprise kind of put on him um and it's just the fear of like someone coming around with cameras and you know just seeing it all and you know i'm, I'm very active on social media with all the other enterprises and it was uh it was almost hypocritical to be like you know boasting all the other strengths of the other enterprises and then having this intensive pig unit which was the complete opposite so yeah not having that that there and and um and obviously the, the workload has changed a lot so um yeah dad's back's a bit better and yeah just feel it yeah, everyone just seems happy my wife's happy i don't stink of pigs every day <laughs> so um yeah no we just need to say get the get the next enterprise up and running and then we'll be in a better position financially and then we should be a bit happier again Mm. Well, let, let's come back in a second to talk more about what the other things that you've noticed, I guess, changing on the farm, you know, in terms of the soils, the biodiversity, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but let's go to let's go to Jake. Jake, can you tell us a little bit more about your journey? Everyone's calling it a journey here. <laughs> I know <laughs> we, we uh, you and I met, we were just talking about this before we started recording. Uh, you and I met about nine years ago now. And when I just started as a a sort of farming journalist and I remember at the time you were you were quite you were very present in the um the agricultural press weren't you because you just started um doing Mintel and since then you've you've brought in a lot of other changes haven't you kind of what what started you off on all of this and where are you now I guess um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's quite a journey, Jez, and we are nowhere near the end of it. And I, I don't think we ever will be. And I think that is part of the fun about farming in a regenerative sort of style. There's no prescription. It varies from farm to farm, field to field, season to season. Um, and I think that's the fun and also the challenge of it. Um, but we started with this journey over 10 years ago now, realistically, we were looking back then, 2010, 2011, uh, reduced prices, reduced government support, um, reduced prices for for grain, um, increasing costs. Um, And we were looking back then, we were a plow-based system that was costing us 169 pounds a hectare to establish a hectare of wheat. Um, And we were thinking, you know, wheat then was hundred pounds a ton. There's no, there's no real money in this, um, support payments being phased out at some stage. It's taken a decade, but it was always on the cards. So we were looking at a different establishment system for our arable crops, really. Um, so we, we moved into Mintil and then we moved, um, after my Nuffield farming scholarship in 2013 into almost exclusively direct drilling. Um, and that through the sort of the, the changes in those strategies have, have moved us down from, let's say, £169 a hectare down to about £46 a hectare um, per crop to establish. So significant savings. Um, so it was really economics driven um, when we started. And it's it's like all of these things, you, you sort of learn as you go along. And then 
you know, the economics on just uh, establishing crops then enabled us to have a look at soil health, um, have a look at reducing soil erosion from the slopes of the hill that we farm here. Um, and by not disturbing the soil, we're getting better infiltration of water, which is hugely important on all of our soil types. Um, and that's building climate change resilience uh, by increasing organic matter over time. Uh, we're reducing inputs in terms of insecticides, seed dressings, uh, nitrogen fertilizer. So all of these other cost savings have come almost by accident. We didn't plan to do those at all. We, we invested significantly in the drill in 2000 and, uh, well, it came in 2015. So this is just about to start its eighth season now. Um, and we costed all that out on the back of savings in labor, machinery and fuel. We didn't look at gross margin performance at all in terms of output or cost savings. Um, our yields have, uh, have been going up um, if we take out 2019-20, because that was just a complete disaster for, yeah, a lot of this part of the world. Um, so, you know, we are encouragingly uh, going on the right path of, of yield improvement um, and also reducing costs at the same time. So, yeah, we're, we're delighted to be farming this way and really pleased that we bit the bullet, you know, 10 years ago to start looking at it. Um, and, and then you look at some of the environmental impacts as well, the environmental benefits. We, we're, we've got a big conservation stewardship agreement here, um, both higher tier and HLS, ELS before, um, countryside stewardship before that. So it fits in really nicely with the ethos of the, the family that owns the estate um, and how we can produce quality food and, and great enhancement of the environment at the same time. So... Um, yeah, really happy that we've we've made these significant changes to the farm business. It's a real, it sounds like a real win-win all round, really. And and like you say, there's a real strong business case for it when you get everything working like that. Um, what um, you you mentioned you mentioned Jake about um, you've been able to to make sure that you're getting better infiltration rate um, in the soil. Has that has that sort of um, put you in good stead to deal with the drought this year like what is what is the land how has it coped with it I guess yeah it's a really great question and it's one I, I sort of struggle to um, to answer with a sort of a scientific head on because it, to get the right answer we should have had half the farm in our current system and half the farm in the opposite system and you can compare the two I do know that our organic matter levels have been going up at a good rate, um, and we're talking 0 0.2 um, percentage points on um, on a loss of ignition test um, per annum over the last seven years, and that's we get some independent people to come in and, and do that analysis for me. Um, and the theory is that more organic matter holds more moisture, um, so you have got that um, slightly larger sponge, as I like to re refer to it as, to hold nutrients. Um, and moisture um, and our yields this year were really good apart from a couple of fields of spring barley on our really lightest sand fields which you know aren't going to perform on 200 mil of rain in the growing season um, so I've been really delighted with the yields this year across the board we've had loads of sunshine which I think helped but we've also done that on the back of significantly reducing our nitrogen input 
So we would have been using in our sort of plough based and, and cultivating system 100, uh, 240 to 280 kilos of nitrogen. This year we were averaging about 170 um, and we had a significant area of the farm at 130 um, and we've had some really great yields. So um, there's an awful lot of variables in there. Sunshine, I think, as I've just mentioned, is, is a significant one. Um, but you have to set the crop up to give it everything it needs to be able to take advantage of those natural benefits that come in the season. And some season, like 2012, we won't get them. Seasons like this, we have done. But I've been really pleased how the crops have um, withstood the very high temperatures. We had some significant heat uh, the last week, last well, third week of June, um, sort of 19, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th of June. Um, and, you know, wheat was flowering at that point. And, yeah, we were thinking, oh, this might not be very good. But um, with that and then the sort of the July heat um, didn't really seem to impact our crop significantly. And, I, you know, I was very pleasantly surprised about that. Do you, do you think you're... Um... I'm sure, you know, it's always worrying when there's hardly any rain, isn't it? Isn't it? But do you think you're less stressed and less worried when there's a year like like the one, you know, like the one that we've we've had at the moment and also when there are really when input costs are so high and obviously I mean, it, you know, geopolitically right now is a very worrying time. Do you think you're you feel a little bit less worried than you would have been say 15 years ago with with the system you had then um i i think we're we're in a, a hugely stressful uh time both as a as a farm business manager and as an individual with a you know family and a house to look after and everything else we are in hugely turbulent and volatile times um and it does, you know, it significantly, you know, it does worry me, uh, partly because we need to perform, we need the output to be able to cover the significant costs of growing these crops now. Am I any less worried? I probably, I'm probably about the same amount of worriedness, but it's all heightened. We have less at stake, you know, in terms of our growing crop costs per hectare. You know, this last year we were averaging uh, just around £500 a hectare to grow a crop of wheat. Well, that's going to be probably £800 a hectare next year, um, depending on where the fertiliser is. We saved a significant amount of fertiliser from last year into this year, so that's going to help reduce the average. But, you know, that we're still, we're still exposed with an awful lot of investment um, and the vagaries of the weather and how the weather is changing its patterns. And, and we have obviously no control of that. So I probably would be more stressed in a, in a sort of a, let's call it a full input or conventional full input system. Um, but the stress levels are still pretty high. And I think that goes across all the sectors, whether that's, you know, red meat, um, you know, poultry, it's, uh, it's a really worrying time for farmers. And politically as well, I'm not, I'm not sure we are being fully backed by our government um, in supporting the need for a wholesome supply of sustainable food um, in our country. And I think, you know, what worries me is that that is very short-sighted. It has been for years, 
but things are definitely changing since um, February this year. And I'm not sure our government really has a grasp of the implications of that in the sort of short to medium and even long term. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we will, we're definitely going to come back to that in a second. Um, George, what, what about you? I mean, um, you know, you were meant, we were talking earlier about how as a family, as a business, you feel kind of happier. Um, and obviously, right, right, you said you got, you know, you you got out of pigs earlier in the year because obviously we know everything that was happening in that sector. Um, but now that you're less reliant on on um, on bought-in inputs, given the current state of things, do you feel in a better place than where you would have been, say, a few years ago? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, <clears throat> our beef model now relies on very little inputs you know mainly uh just some bought in minerals um and obviously the contracting costs for making the winter forage but that's that's getting less because we're trying to grow more hay and and you know we're trying to reduce the winter costs as much as possible um yeah we i guess with the poultry you know our main cost is the feed so we're very that's what worries me the most um because we can't control that um, although I'd love to sort of build a relationship with a local farmer and, and um, have the food grown locally. Um, but still, obviously, you've got to pay the going rate. So, the, the yeah, the feed price is the biggest issue. But in terms of our actual inputs on the farming systems now, they are a lot less. Um, although things have changed because we're, we're adding value now. So we've got a big freezer running, which is using a lot of electricity, um, a lot more than I thought. Oh, we're lucky we're on a fixed contract, still only paying about 16 pence a kilowatt, but that's going to change fairly soon. Um, I mean, there are options, you know, we can put solar panels in, but it's just further investment that's required. Um, but yeah, the grassland, <clears throat> we've um, we actually made, or half made, Bukashi last year, where you ferment the, um, the muck from the yards. Um, so we put that on this year. And um, I... From the science, this is the first year we've done it, but the science behind it is that it's it retains a lot more of the nutrients and it it should get absorbed into the soil a lot quicker. Um, so I'm hoping that by doing that, we'll we'll see improvements there in in yields for next spring in the grass. Um, but the patches are just changing through the different management anyway, so they're they're becoming more resilient because we're grazing taller covers, we're trampling more and keeping the soil protected. So. We haven't had to feed anything this winter, uh, this summer, sorry, through the drought. You know, we managed to managed to keep them all going through longer rest periods um, and still had some fat to sell. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely taken. I mean, if we were still in pigs with, you know, with the feed price and the pig price, it, it would have been. Yeah, it, it would have been a lot more stressful, I must admit, and, and we would have been losing money for sure. Mm. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think, um, you know, what's what's clear from, from talking to you both is the amount of thought and everything that you put into all of this all the time. And you're constantly tweaking things and experimenting with things. Guys, is there, is there anything from the current state of government, let's say, that is particularly concerning you? You know, in terms of your business and particularly in terms of obviously <clears throat> we're talking about nature a lot here. So Jake, did you want to kick off at all? Yeah, I think one of the things that slightly concerns me is the potential bonfire of uh, red tape um, and, and legislation. And I, I agree that a lot of legislation 
is duplication and overkill, but there's some significant um, environmental protection, food quality standards, um, which we really would be foolish to remove completely. Um, it just opens the gate to a race to the bottom and kind of a potential environmental vandalism to um, make more money, uh, as well as then reducing the quality of the food, uh, which has health implications. And, you know, over a generation, that's going to put more pressure on the NHS if we still have an NHS um, at that time. So those sorts of things really worry me. Um, uh, they're there for a good reason at the moment, uh, on the whole. Um, and it's, you know, it's not a popular thing to say, but, you know, red tape is there for a reason. You just look at what's happening in water treatment companies at the moment and the fact that they are able to discharge sewage into rivers and oceans. That's not good. It's, it's not good for us, for our children, our current environment, and actually farming's better than that. Um, you know, there's nothing better than watching kingfishers on the stream through the farm here, watching skylarks pop out of some of our margins as you drive past, going ringing with the West Midland bird ringers for woodcock at night with sort of thermal cameras and things like that. And actually to lose all of that for the sake of, um, you know, some legislation is just a tragedy and we can't let that happen. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree. I think, you know, if you look at places around the world with very uh, loose regulation, let's say, particularly places like, like the US actually in terms of water quality and stuff like that, I mean, it's a disaster, you know, so... Um, yeah, George, what, what, do you kind of share the same uh, same feelings as, as Jake or do you have any others? Yeah, no, I agree totally with what Jake was just saying. I just, it does worry me <clears throat> that, you know, if we start having short um, supplies in the supermarkets and people start, you know, realising we need to produce more food and ramp it all up. Yeah, it worries me the thought that they're just going to intensify, you know, to feed the population and, and, uh, and then you just end up, like Jake was saying, potentially losing a lot of, biodiversity but also just degrading the soil even further and then you find that you in a few years time you'll be able to, you won't be able to produce as much food anyway just and so yeah it does worry me that we can get our heads fixed on producing 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 without the environment or the soil and then end up desertifying the whole country potentially um whereas you know the, the work that jake's doing is proof that you can build organic matter and and yields and higher quality food it doesn't have to be rip up margins and plow more and intensify you know there's there is a better way it's just seeing that and i mean i did a holistic management course with 3lm a few years ago which totally blew my mind in terms of how to look at things when you start looking at things holistically um it was one of those things you know it sounds a bit sounds a bit all sort of hippie like but it's um yeah, when you just look at the knock-on consequences of every action um, and then project that forward into the future, it's, it could be quite frightening, really. I don't, I don't think it's hippie at all. I think it's, it's reality, you know, and it's reality that we're just starting to, uh, to, you know, for people to feel comfortable, like, talking about and, and you know, feeling good about. So yeah. it's, a, it's a funny old time, politically, isn't it? And... If Liz Truss was to have some amazing epiphany, which I don't honestly know if she has them other than uh, if they're related to growth, but if she was 
And she used to think, I know, um, I'm going to turbocharge uh, regenerative farming, a more agroecological way of farming, and we're going to boost food production and nature at the same time. What would that look like? Like, what would what would the government need to do? Do you think to really help support farmers to be able to make those changes in a way that um, that would allow their businesses to to kind of weather that transition and you know would would give them what they what they needed in terms of the support, the information. Just um, before we go on to that, Jez, George George makes a really good point in that last in his last answer, and I think. We're sort of lulled into a false sense of security in this country with our degradation of, of soil and environment. Because we have a maritime climate, things happen very, very slowly. So it is a generational shift. And because it's a generational shift and change, it's not really noticed. Um, whereas you go to the Midwest in America, 1930s, um, you know, it was happening in a decade there. And that's what really focuses people's mind. It's when it, it's happening to you and it's happening, um, you know, within our, you know, time frame, our lifespan, I guess. So um, George makes a, makes a really valid point that, that it is, um, yeah, it's something that we just, we need to be aware that it's happening um, and it's within our control to reverse it as well. I think that's important. Um, as for Liz Truss's epiphany, um, I think the sustainable farming incentive um, could be really powerful in terms of, you know, its name suggests what it should be able to do. So I think we need to incentivize farmers to to move in this this direction, whether that's through payment, um, whether that is through, uh, and and a lot of it is about knowledge and knowledge exchange and how you get the message out and how you get the skills out to people that this is, um, you know, it's a good way to farm environmentally and economically as well. Let's not forget that economic side of things. That's the reason we went down this route to start with. It wasn't because we wanted to have more skylarks, although, you know, that's come as a result of the change in, in farming practice. Um, so those those skills and knowledge need to be more widely available. Um, and it is, you know, this is the challenge with it. It is quite farm specific in terms of what will work in the, the principles of Regen Ag, if you like, for different farms. Um, and you need the right advisors to, to be able to get those messages across. And I think farmer to farmer learning is really key to this. Farmers are a skeptical bunch, um, as we all know, but getting them on farm, actually digging holes, talking to farm staff, actually, I've, I've several times, Derek, who drives the, the the drill and the cross slot here and, and the, the tractor used to do all the cultivations and on a farm walk um, he'll very often get asked um, by visitors is it right what Jake says and um, you know oh, is he telling the truth <laughs> and, really? oh yeah they'll sidle up to Derek at the back and say when was the last time you subsoiled this Evesham series clay soil and Derek's like well no we haven't <laughs> really are you sure um, and so it's that degree of scepticalness, which, you know, you won't get from, you know, reading a magazine, I'm not, you know, nothing against articles in, in any sort of format, printed or, or visual or, or even podcasts. Um, it's getting farmers in a field, digging a hole and having a look. And that's why, you know, shameful plug for leaf linking environment and farming, demonstration farms, beacon farms, resilient and ready farms is part of that that education piece, AHDB with their strategic farms. I'm involved in the one down with David Miller in the south. And, 
you know, there's some really interesting trials going on down there. And it's a great, it's a great opportunity to show people exactly what can happen, what the benefits are. Um, and I think that's the first part of getting everybody, you know, on that journey together, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that comes up quite a lot when I ask this question to, to farmers, you know, what, what can what would you really need to help you and to support you? And it is, like you say, that knowledge exchange, like farmer to farmer, that sort of peer, peer-to-peer kind of knowledge exchange. Um, George, is there anything else that you would say that um, you think would really, really help at this point? I'm not sure in the short term, um, but I think what would be really interesting is if we were paid on nutrient density of food um, because I feel like, I mean, I don't know that the, I have not seen the data, but I feel like food produced in a more nature friendly way or from healthy living biodynamic soils is, will inherently have more nutrients, which means you won't need to eat so much of it. And so you could maybe tackle the kind of shortage of food in a way that you don't need to eat more volume or produce more volume. We just need to produce better quality and eat less. I mean, I'm going on a tangent here, but like if you look at the population statistics and the amount of overweight people there are, you know, really eating a bit less isn't going to do anyone any harm. Um, but if we um, if we were paid on nutrient density, I I don't know how exactly, but I do feel that um, that would change the way we farm quite significantly because people would soon realise that they they would need to produce it in a in a, in a better way or a different way. Um, I say it's, 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 that's quite a long-term sort of approach, but I know that there's guys in America that are, are working on this and um, they, they think it's sort of in the next five to 10 years, you'll be able to measure nutrient density of foods a lot easier and, and have the information already available for consumers to make those choices. Wow. That, no, that's really interesting. I like that idea. That is a very interesting one to one to one to watch for sure and you you know nutrient density i think it's i don't know too much about this but i feel like it's also uh very linked to flavor but anyway yes we're going off on a tangent here so very quickly (laughs) no no don't apologize i love tangents um so i guess to to kind of round off um i wanted to ask you if the you know for some tips really for people listening who might be just starting off in uh starting to think about farming a bit differently a bit more with nature a bit more regeneratively is there anything that you wish you'd known at the beginning before you started out that might have saved you lots of time or money or frustration well jake i can see you smiling with this it sounds like it looks like you're sort of thinking ah yes definitely what is there anything I think one of the advantages about setting off on this journey now is that there is a lot more people already down that journey that are very willing, happy and able to share some of the successes and probably more importantly, the failures. Um, So social media is brilliant for that. There's websites, there is, uh, you know, articles in, in all the magazines now about you know, regenerative agriculture, cover crop types, mixes, species, um, drill manufacturers. You know, when when we came back from Nuffield, um, there was probably three or maybe four drills that you could probably get hold of in the UK for direct drilling. And, and now it's a, a seemingly endless list. So manufacturers are, are stepping up to the plate and um, innovating and, and bringing things into this country from abroad. 
having your eyes and your ears open is really important. Get out onto farms, go on farm walks, try a little bit of your own farm to start with. So maybe join up with a neighbour, find a contractor, uh, do, do a field, maybe do that for a couple of three years and just see how you get on with it and take it from there. Because I think once you do try and once you do make a start, some of the, the benefits will come very rapidly to the, to the farm and then you can just start to roll it out. And I think farmers also need to collaborate more as well, join up with neighbours, sharing farm machinery, those sorts of things. It's just going to become hugely important um, in the future, trying to reduce costs um, and increase efficiency, which we're, we're going to need to do. Nice. OK, so we've got um, get clued up with as much information as you can, collaborate with other people and just start just try something basically on your farm yeah okay yeah exactly yeah. just try try a field somewhere as soon as you can yeah. okay um yeah. george would you add anything to that is there anything you wish you'd you'd known at the beginning i totally agree with jake there i was going to say just try a small bit first don't don't jump straight in because it could be crippling but um yeah i mean there's there's loads of um Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups and just all these discussion groups for various different aspects of it. You know, there's loads of people who ask a question straight away, they're on it, helping you. So yeah, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to try try a little bit. Um, invest in your own knowledge. You know, we we did this, you know, we've, I've done a few courses, done this list management course, you know. Yeah, it costs a bit of money, but you, you get a lot out of it. Um, and you can learn and make contacts and network whilst you're whilst you're doing it. Don't be afraid that if you if your output does decrease, it doesn't mean it's, it's not just just solely on output. It's, it's profitability is is number one. And yes, your output might decrease, but so will your costs. And you know what I've been finding is I have massively cut a lot of costs out of our beef enterprise. And yeah, our output has actually maintained. But if it had have decreased. I wouldn't have been so worried because we've lost so much cost and you can make profit. It's easier to make more profit by reducing cost than it is increasing output. So um, just try and look at it from a different angle than the way you normally would do, I guess. George, George is spot on with that last comment. And I think that the backdrop to that is the challenges we have with climate. Climate is changing and that's going to have huge swings of uh, on production, I think. Um, and if your costs are low enough to be able to get by in those tough years but then on the good years with the weather actually capitalize you know to a much greater extent because you you you're reducing those costs of production then then that's got to be got to be the way forward thank you to jez jake and george for that don't miss the latest edition of this week's farmer's guardian where we take a look at the latest news on welsh water regulations we celebrate the US getting its first taste of British lamb for 20 years, and Hannah Binns speaks to a young farmer on how contracting Lyme disease has impacted his farming career. But that's all we've got time for on this week's Over the Farm Gate. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'll be back next week, so for now, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.